Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Katie Hunzinger. Katie is a coach here at Hardbed Athletics, but today we're going to be talking about her experience as part of her research for studying brain injuries and concussions. Katie did her bachelor's in kinesiology, her master's in health and exercise science, and her PhD in biomechanics and movement sciences. Her dissertation was on midlife effects of repetitive head impacts and concussion. Today, we dive deep into the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment for concussions, where the research was and where it's going, and everything in between. I think that there's going to be a lot of practical lessons for parents that have either concerns or questions for their kids that are involved in contact sports, and we talk about Katie's experience in contact sports herself and how that has given her um, a much greater degree of empathy for people that experience head injuries. I think you're going to take a lot out of this, and this was a lot of fun for me to record, and I learned a ton. Enjoy. Katie, what's up? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this is exciting. You're technically the first coach that we have on. What a privilege! I know. <laughs> it's, uh, Iris obviously um, interviewed me for the first one, but uh, I'm super excited to get every coach on, and I think you're going to bring a really interesting perspective to this conversation because there's so many parents out there uh, that have questions around concussion protocols and safety. Um, you know, safety that's in place for their kids that want to play football or get involved in boxing or God forbid MMA. So, um, you know, we can talk about um, all of these things and more. So thank you so much again for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So your background um, was in movement science, biomechanics, and now has kind of veered more towards this concussion protocol. Can you speak to a bit of your experience with your undergraduate, graduate degree, and then your PhD? Yeah, so um kind of a jack of all trades and a, a good example of persistence pays off, I suppose. Um, because I went to college with the military and that was going to be my career for 30 years. I, I made that up at 18 as an 18 year old does. And I had a, I was a college athlete as well. And I had a really bad concussion, um, multiple in college. And that just medically disqualified me. I was having persistent concussion symptoms, I wasn't getting the proper rehabilitation I needed. So this is kind of my villain origin story, if you will. Yeah. And uh, so I finished out my degree in kinesiology, went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I got in a car wreck. I got rear-ended at a red light. And same thing. I had concussion symptoms for about nine months. I wasn't being treated properly because I was no longer an athlete. So now I was going through student health care. Uh, Were you aware as these other incidences occurred or after your second and third and fourth concussion, were, were these symptoms, were you, were you able to kind of get a pulse on them quicker? Yeah. Like the second the car wreck happened, they were like, do you need EMS? And I was like, I have a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't even let them check me out. I was like, I have a concussion. Like don't even bother looking at me. And I was really annoyed because I knew how I was rehabbed as an athlete and as a student and not a student athlete, I was told sit in a dark room until you felt better. 
And this was 2015, 2016. And I was like, that's not the treatment anymore. Why am I being prescribed that at a good school, nonetheless, at a good hospital? And um, that led me to doing my uh, leading to want to study concussions more. So I was working with knee osteoarthritis and runners. And I was like, that's it. I want to do concussions because people are still being prescribed incorrectly. And, um, you know, it was a very conservative treatment. And so then I came to Delaware um, for Dr. Tom Buckley. I wanted to work with him and I liked his research. So I did my uh, PhD at Delaware and focused on concussion and sport. That's awesome. You know, it you just sparked something in me because I've only had one ever diagnosed concussion. And although I know that even just from play as a kid and hitting, you know, boards hitting my head or falling on my head, um, things have absolutely happened. But the one time that I had a diagnosed concussion from sport, those were my protocols. It was dark room, long, a uh, long period of time, and then have your mom wake you up every hour throughout Ooh, the night. Yes. Remember so that's those? what I was told in high school as well. When my first concussion ever in basketball, um, I got erlackered is what I called it um, <laughs> for any football fans. Yeah, I just somebody took my legs out in the air and landed on my head and and they they made my mother wake me up every hour and and now we know that that actually prolongs your healing. So, you know, what that number may be, you know, if if your concussion was going to take 7 days to heal, you now may have made your healing time 8 or 9 or 10 days, you know, which doesn't sound like much, but that's, you know, 15 to 20% longer. That's pretty significant in the grand scheme of things and yeah, so we, we call that cocoon therapy because it's sit in a dark room until you feel better. And uh, the way I've always explained it to people is take a healthy 18-year-old who's a freshman in college or a senior in high school, put them in a dark room, take their phone away, and say, sit in this room till you feel better. <laughs> like, are they going to have sensitivity to light? Probably. Are they going to have anxiety, depression, somatization? Are they going to feel just crummy? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody wants to sit in a dark room. So now you're telling somebody who's already in, you know, a neurological dysfunctional state to sit in a dark room. Don't think about that headache. Like it's like the pink elephant. Don't think about your pink, you know, your pink elephant, because if you have a pink elephant, you, you can't go back to sports. So you're sitting there and you're like, don't have a headache. Don't have a headache. Don't have a headache. You know? Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah, so now we know that that cocoon therapy is, is the worst thing to do. And, and the whole waking somebody up was really more so for, um, like hemorrhagic injuries. So like if you had a brain bleed, like by waking somebody up, you would be able to see like their neurological status is, is off. And if you have a brain bleed, you don't have a concussion. Like we're, we're beyond concussion at this yeah, point. Yeah, we're in a different conversation. Exactly. And so like hopefully there'd be some other triggers that would let us know um, that that's going on. So yeah, now it's, um, we let people rest 24 hours. So, you know, you, you get a concussion in Friday night's football game. We let you rest 24 hours. And then after that, we start an active rehabilitation protocol. And that's really why I was so interested in concussions because my background was in cardiac rehabilitation and, you know, like little history lesson is, you know, in, in cardiac rehab, we used to, you used to have a heart attack and we'd let you be on bed rest for three months. And then we realized people were dying. And then it was, okay, you can sit in a chair for three months. And then we realized people were dying. And now it's, you have a heart attack day one, you're walking and you're doing active exercise because we know that that's what's good for the, um, you know, the circulatory system, the cardiovascular system. So the concussion protocol was actually based off of um, the cardiac rehabilitation protocol. So it's the same exact thing where we do essentially a graded exercise test like you would have done in like your exercise physiology class. 
where we put you on a treadmill and we figure out at what heart rate does your concussion symptoms exacerbate. So it's 140 beats per minute, your heart rate, you know, your, your headache gets worse. And so we say, okay, that's your threshold. So now let's take 10% off of that. That's your max heart rate. So, you know, 126, that's the max heart rate you're allowed to work at. We're going to do walking. We're going to do this. And so we start this active rehabilitation that's symptom limited uh, immediately 24 hours following concussion and it's improving your outcome. So you have better return to play times, better return to sport times. That's really interesting. So I didn't get into nearly as much of the research side of things as you did through my experience in schooling. Um, but I did take a very keen interest in a lot of it. So I have, I feel like we can lay a really good foundation um, for the layperson in terms of understanding how to discern between good and bad research. Um, one of the things that I have, have found is that research typically is a lagging measure of the actual application. So, you know, a good example of this, one that gets coined all the time is like the rice example, yeah. right? The rastized compression elevation um, that has now, the, even the guy that um, had originally promoted that, I forget his name, yeah. but he came out again years ago. Like we're talking decades at this yeah. point. It was like, this is no longer relevant and yet there's still people doing it. Yeah, he was like, I'm so sorry I did that, guy. <laughs> right, and, and but most much in the same, what we can't do is every time a new research, like one study comes out, we say, oh, this is the new way that we're going to handle this mm -hmm. because the reality is there's some serious, you know, peer review editing and, and processes that take time in order to validate research on a, on a grander level. Can you speak to um, what makes something good research versus bad research and some things that like the general public should know about research. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you bring up a great point with the rice example and, um, what we say in physical therapy is about 14 years. So between the study being done and it making it into clinical practice is about 14 years. And so that in of itself is a problem, you know, and, and I clearly experienced that with my concussion, right? You know, that was 2015 and we've been practicing active exercise rehabilitation since 2007, you know, so it's just kind of, there's clearly a lag in that. And so, you know, with good and bad research, a lot of it stems to where's the research coming from. So like you mentioned peer review. So is this on vox.com or buzzfeed.com? Probably not referencing a peer review article. Um, you know, so there's going to be different articles that are publishing thing, big things. So we're talking big papers are going to be like Journal of um, American Medical Association, JAMA, British Sports, uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, BJSM. So there's going to be big journals and we measure those by impact factor. It's not a perfect system, but it's better than nothing. Um, and so just when you're looking at this research, so you kind of have to start figuring out, okay, who's doing the research? You know, are they credentialed? Is this some... Um, small laboratory in Turkmenistan and they had three subjects, you know, so yeah. versus, um, you know, a study of, you know, a thousand people. So, you know, kind of just thinking at each stage of the study. So who's their sample? Is it representative of the people that they're trying to represent? You know, so demographics, we're thinking race, ethnicity, sex, gender, um, and then the measurement that they're actually looking at. So, you know, did they look at changes in body fat over time and their baseline was, you know, zero and then their follow-up day was a week, a week later? Like, you're not going to see body fat changes, you know? So just trying to see, you know, does it make sense? Is their hypothesis actually testing what you think it's going to test? And so, and then are they using the appropriate measure, you know? So I'm a biomechanist, so 
you know, we can do a motion capture system, which is really cool and really expensive. And that's going to be the most accurate um, downside of that. We're probably not going to get thousands and thousands of subject because that's a lot of setup. So there's a give and take with each, just like you ha- would have with, you know, BIA versus skin folds versus a DEXA scan for body fat. And so just kind of, are they measuring what they what they think they're actually measuring, you know? And so is this truly measuring body fat? Is this truly measuring gait? Um and things like that. And then, you know, statistics, unfortunately, is the big one that we see a lot of like fraud or just bad science where they don't account for statistical assumptions. And unfortunately, that's very hard for the layperson. I think we've seen that with like COVID data being, you know, misinterpreted or just any data. You, you know, you look at the newspaper and, you know, the famous quote is liars figure and figures lie. And so, just taking the time to try to interpret it or seeking out somebody who has the skills to interpret it for you. Because there are good resources out there where they're, um, you know, people are interpreting the data for you. But, um, you know, th- there's just so much out there. And, and the Internet's so great, but it's so harmful as well. Because, you know, the BuzzFeed article gets read and the clickbait title in CNN or Fox gets read and not the actual manuscript in JAMA. And so it's by the time you know, the paper gets out there, it's been, you know, confused. And, you know, I've had my research, I've had people attack me on Twitter and say, you're trying to ruin sport. And I'm out here, you know, on the field goal, you know, at the, the, at the end zone saying, hit them harder. (laughs) I was like, I don't think I'm trying to ruin sport. I think you misinterpreted my data. Yeah. And I think interpretation um, does unfortunately play its heavy hand in this because by the time this gets, delivered to the general public in a way that's like palatable for them it has been watered down and has uh is does now include a ton of bias based on the person that's interpreting uh, interpreting that data or interpreting the conclusion of somebody else yeah and and there's also you know a positive publication bias too you know so studies that show something uh, big, you know, they saw a huge difference, you know, they, they thought there was going to be a difference in their intervention and there was huge, you know, there was a good paper about two weeks ago where they looked at the top 10 studies on uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, you know, big football story right now. And they looked at the top studies where they showed positive CTE findings. So you had it. And then the top 10 studies for negative CTE. <laughs> and I think like, the top 10 with positive CTE findings were cited like thousands of times. They had like hundreds of thousand hits on Twitter. And then the top 10 studies with negative findings, I think like two of them in that 10 didn't even have any citations. Like nobody even oh, cited wow. those studies. And so it was like this clear um, bias in the research where people were clearly citing, you know, the one study that showed you're going to get CTE, but they weren't playing the counter argument. So that going back to a good research, you know, when they're building their argument, they need to be playing both sides of the coin, you know, so you need to tell both stories, you know, there's some research that says this, you know, lifting weights is good, there's some research that shows lifting weights are bad, but here's the caveat, and this is why, you know, or whatever. Yeah, so, so when it comes to um, research around concussions, is it difficult to extract out the confounding factors? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot. And so that, it, you know, we're getting there. And can you explain to the audience what confounding factors are? Yeah. So um, like a confounding variable is things that can attribute to the change that you don't expect. So, um, you know, so like 
if I'm weightlifting and I want to see how strong I get over the next eight weeks, if I, you know, add creatine and protein, you know, that might be a confounding variable because that may help increase my muscle mass over time. And so with concussion, you know, there's just so many variables. Um, you know, you want to make it easy on the research and just say, yes, no, did you get sleep? You know, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, yes. Which we all know how people, how, how accurate people are with answering questions. Right. And so, you know, self-report data, a lot of concussion research has relied on it. And it's, it's fairly reliable, but it doesn't get into that minutia, like you said, you know. So, you know, what's your nutrition been? You know, what is your sleep? Uh, what is your cognitive load? You know, there's a big difference in how hard you're working your brain if you're sitting in organic chemistry when you're concussed right. versus watching TikTok at home. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I think personally that the clearest um, example of the implication of confounding variables is actually when you look at uh, different diets. Oh, yes. So when you talk about like a vegetarian diet versus, you know, the, the average or standard American diet, it's like it's not just the fact that they're only or primarily eating vegetables. They also are likely making a bunch of other health conscious yes. decisions that the right. average American is not. It's just like, yeah, like when people went gluten free, they're like, oh, I lost weight. And I'm like, you stopped eating Oreos. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the gluten that made you put on weight. Yeah, no, that's perfect. <laughs> now, listen, obviously there are there are plenty of people that are experts in things that they don't necessarily have a personal hand in. You know, the example of this is like there are great basketball coaches that never actually played or great football coaches that never actually played or never played at a high level. Now, for you, how impactful has it been and how important has it been as part of your research to have played in sports like rugby where you've had this contact, um, you know, you've played in contact sports and you've had those experiences. How has that translated or, or transferred over to you um, as part of your research? Empathy. Yeah, just def definitely empathy. I mean, you know, research is hard. It's really hard to recruit human subjects because, um, you know, you don't want to say, hey, come volunteer for this study. We'll give you $1,000. You know, that's one, that you're asking for a lot of money. And then two, you're biasing your sample because people who need the money are going to volunteer. And, um, you know, so just kind of understanding the group that you're working with and understanding what they're going through, um, because it's especially something like concussion. I mean, it, it's obvious when you tear your ACL. Everyone knows that everyone feels bad for you. But when you have a concussion and you're suffering and you're having persistent concussion symptoms for, you know, longer than three months, nobody believes you. They think it's in your head. And, um, you know, having gone through that myself, like I just, I know how miserable it is and how much a strain it puts on your mental health, on your interpersonal relationships, your social life, and just your physical health. And so, it really helps to just kind of be there with them. And then, you know, also understanding that, you know, I'm not trying to ruin sport. I want to make sport as safe as possible while permitting people to play sports because we all know sports are good. Physical activity is good. And, you know, playing sports are so good for your social health, your mental health, and your physical health. So is there a way that we can continue doing it and maintaining all of those benefits without, you know, putting our brains at risk or putting our ACLs at risk or our ankles at risk. And so it really helps to just kind of know your sample and, and, and know what they need and, and what you can give them as well and trying to have that collaborative relationship. Yeah, no, that's, that's really insightful. And I think that um, it really speaks to 
you know, why it's important that you care about the thing that you're researching um, because, you know, you have this personal background and because of it, there's this, you know, empathy side of, you know, that you're taking into uh, the equation when you're working with someone one-on-one that has been through something and it's not just a matter of referring to the data, um, which I think is, is really helpful. Um, and now we dove into the, the nuances of <clears throat> research, but what are the misconceptions that you find to be prevalent amongst just the general population when it comes to things like prevention, diagnosis, and like treatment of concussions? I mean, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, we do this survey in a lot of our research, um, where we look at concussion knowledge and attitudes and we can kind of see where a lot of those misconceptions lie. And, um, it's, it's very prevalent to say the least. So, you know, people think that, um, you need to have a positive CT finding to, you know, CAT scan finding to have a concussion, you know, or that, and that's not necessarily the case, or they think that a concussion can be diagnosed by a CT and it it can't, um, you know, the number one predictor of concussion diagnosis is symptoms to this day out of all the tools we have it's self-reported symptoms remains the most accurate and reliable. Um, you know, or people think that, um, you have to lose consciousness to have a concussion, um, or forget things that have, you know, retrograde or anterograde amnesia where you forget what happened after the event or before the event. And, um, so we see that a lot. Um, and then we also see the, the, the flip side. So, you know, we have the people think things aren't concussions that are, but then you have the flip side where you have people think like, if you have one concussion, you're going to die and you're going to get CTE. So it's kind of like we've swung this pendulum to the other side. So before we went like, you know, you hit your head, whatever, you're seeing stars, you know, rub some dirt on it, that kind of generation. And now we've swung the pendulum the other end where people are thinking, if you have one, you're going to get CTE, you're going to die, you can never play contact sports ever again, and, like, you should just donate your brain now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's not the case, you know. And, and what we always say in concussion research is if you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. You know, we've had athletes who have one really bad, you know, concussion or mild traumatic brain injury, rather, and, you know, they're done with sports. And we've had others who have had, like, 10, 11, and they're fine, you you know, at 22, you know, I don't know what they're going to be like at 70, but you know, all things considered, they're returning to normal on all their measures. And so you're like, okay, so why was that guy or gal any different? And we, we still don't know. Um, you know, and we've had people take a 40 G hit in football and get a concussion and then their teammate take a 400 and, you know, 400 G hit and be fine. And so it's, you know, there's all these variables and it's like, okay, why did he get a, you know, why did that blow to his head result in clinical signs and symptoms and that one didn't? And so, so how much of that plays into impact zone or diet or like strengthening of the neck? Like how many things are there that are actually within the control of the athlete? Yeah, we're looking into everything and anything right now. It's, it's throwing everything at the wall. And so you know, neck strengthening is kind of like a, a hot topic. You know, we're definitely seeing it um, where you're seeing some correlations. And so obviously correlation doesn't equal causation, you know. So we're seeing people with, you know, higher strength necks. Maybe they're not getting concussed as often. Um, 
but you know it's really with the concussion it's really the rotational force so like you know imagine getting hit on the side of your head and your head rotating like that's more likely to result in a concussion than like a linear acceleration so like hit head on is this why boxing is like one of the biggest culprits yeah i mean you figure those you know hook shots yeah they have those well i mean and and you just take it straight (laughs) it's there's there's just no protection Yeah. yeah so does there um do the risks increase as the volume of the trauma increases yeah so they're trying to get at that you know so you know that's kind of my research is repetitive head impacts and you know there's this theory essentially you know like it can't be good (laughs) you know at the end of the day it it, it can't be good you know bang your head into the wall a million times it can't be good and so it's kind of like this theory of like you know at what point is that limit where we're going to start having dysfunction and and it's got to be somewhere but now it's is is what's your limit compared to my limit you know we have no idea and and so do you believe there's a genetic component to this absolutely yeah like we've seen like apoe4 gene being associated with certain concussion outcomes that's fantastic and so that's that's really interesting there's some there's definitely some genetic components where we think that there's like a biological threshold as well that things that you can't you know control and and at the end of the day what you can control really is the amount of head impacts you take and that's where these rule changes are coming in and try to force that limitation like that's really the only modifiable risk factor that we have right now like concrete is how many times you hit your head so it's you know that's why you have soccer leagues limiting um soccer heading to after age 12 because they're like Okay, hey, under 12-year-olds never had the ball anyway, so let's just not even include it. Okay, you know? so let's try to simplify this for, you know, the moms and dads out there that are like, okay, kids in sport, um, falls, hits their head, mm-hmm. step one. Step one, yeah. Um, pull them out. I mean, like, uh, there's just no sense in risking it, first of all, if, especially if it's a kid. Um, you know, that's kind of our, our number one say is, you know, when in doubt, pull them out. And um Really, I would just say sit them for the day, to be honest, because concussion symptoms can take 24 hours to appear. And you figure, um, you know, adrenaline, like, you know, I'm thinking peewee athlete right now, but you think a 17-year-old and that adrenaline, you know, high school championship, state championship basketball game, they have no idea. <laughs> it's kind of like the NFL before the tent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, lace them up. You got your bell rung. Go back Right. In. Yeah. And so like, and they may feel fine in that first 24 hours. And then the next day or they go to sleep, they wake up, headache, sensitivity to light. And so give it 24 hours, see what happens. You know, if they, if they have symptoms the next day, go to your primary care physician. Um, you know, in a perfect world, everyone has, you know, a physical therapist, ready to go to. Um, I'm a big proponent for physical therapy for concussion. It's really not as utilized as it should be because like we were saying, um, the physicians don't want the risk, you know? So it's easier for me to say, Derek, go home and sit in a dark room until you feel better because you're not as, as much as that's going to prolong your healing, it's not going to make you worse, so to speak. So I'm not at, I'm not at risk for you getting hurt by doing that. Now, if I say, Derek, go home and do symptom limit exercise within 90% of your symptom threshold, one, you're going to be like, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Uh, Two, 
you may interpret that as I can go for a run today. And then your symptoms get worse and you exacerbate it. So that it's right. very conservative. You know, it's just like when somebody gets shoulder surgery and they say, never lift 10 pounds over your head ever again. That's, I, that is probably like a top five pet peeve for me when it comes to physicians yes. is when they rule that out for people. Like we've had members or people come into the gym and they're like 36. And they're like, yeah, my doctor said I can't put my arm above my head. I'm like, what? Like fire your doctor immediately. Like, never shampoo your hair ever again because right. you put your arm above your head. Like what a sentence. <laughs> yeah, a exactly. Sentence. And so like to me, I'm like, okay, well then just be honest about that and say, hey, you know, let's go to physical therapy or, you know, because then somebody can now work more hands-on in a safe and controlled environment for you because a lot of symptoms end up going untreated especially like vestibular so like your inner ears you have those balance dysfunction post-concussion yeah so when in doubt yeah sit it out but get a referral to physical therapy or occupational therapy all those are are amazing recommendations there's one thing i do i want to draw a line between two stars that we just found which is what they found from the rice protocol was that what's actually the most beneficial is compression and movement It's like stimulation of blood flow within the given area, right? To promote like lymph in and out of the area and get all the nourishment to the actual uh, injury site. So it seems as though there's this, you know, hand in hand with concussion protocols now where it's not just go sit in a dark room and do nothing. We actually want to return you to a level of exercise, almost like load tolerance. Like exactly. we want to see what you're capable of doing without the, the onset of symptoms. And we want to ride that line. And then we'll do a bit of like what I would refer to or think of as like progressive overload. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly that. But again, uh, you know, a physician can't, isn't going to prescribe that because it's, it's too hands on. They don't have the time for that. They're seeing all these patients a day. And so, but if you have your high school athletic trainer, or your college athletic trainer, they have that time and they can work with that or the physical therapist can work with that. And so unfortunately how, it's a victim of resources. How many physical therapists are armed with the toolkits necessary to work with concussion um, patients? I would say most. I mean, a lot of physical therapy clinics tend to lean towards orthopedic injuries. So we're thinking, you know, ACL rupture, shoulder replacement, knee replacement, but most of them should be, you know, ready to go for any concussion. I mean, it's pretty much in terms of neurological injuries, it's pretty straightforward. Um, There are concussion clinics out there. Um, They're definitely kind of cash cows. (laughs) Um, I was going to ask, do they target, like, is there clientele generally people that are dealing with chronic issues absolutely yeah so you know just the acute concussion you know high school kid you know I always say go to physical therapy because there's just so many things that are going to be undiagnosed and what's really nice about the state of Delaware obviously every state's different um, but there's about at least half of the states in the United States have direct access to physical therapy and most people don't realize that um so in the state of Delaware, I can go to a physical therapy uh, clinic and get an appointment for an eval, and I can see that physical therapy uh, physical therapist for up to 30 days without a physician referral, which is really nice. So it's kind of like pseudo-direct access, if you will, um, which sometimes that's all, all you need is like a couple weeks of PT and a couple sessions, and it's like, great, I didn't have to waste my time going to a physician, sitting there in the office for 20 minutes, paying a copay and getting a referral and delaying my healing a week because then I got in with the PT clinic. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful, and I don't know how that compares to other states, um, but I think for Delaware, that's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's online somewhere. 
<laughs> I mean, if you just Google direct access physical therapy. Yeah, maybe we'll try to yeah. throw it into the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you and I are both like avid watchers of football. Yes. Um, we both love football, watch all the time. Um, how much as concussion protocols and research improve over time, how much is going to fall on the shoulders of the leagues in order to invoke change that is uh, going to act as a preventative measure for athletes to be safer? And how much is going to just remain at the discretion of the athlete and the trade-offs that are associated with playing contact sports? That's a really great question. Um, you know, the reality is, is do we target the NFL for concussion-related injuries in football? You know, I want to say yes, because that's who's watching. Everyone's watching the NFL. But if we look at a numbers game of what's going to make the bigger impact, it's targeting Pop Warner, right? You know, in, in mm -hmm. peewee football and high school football, because majority of the people that ever play football are only ever going to play high school football. You know, there's a select few that go to college and play. And then within that, there's a very select few that go to the NFL. However, you know, like you said, everyone's watching the NFL. And so, you know, if they see... Tom Brady has a concussion on Sunday and he's back on roster for a Thursday night football game. You're kind of like, wow, he healed in four days, <laughs> you know? And um, the data says that, you know, the data say that that's not right. <laughs> it's not even close. You are not healed. You know, you may not have symptoms, but your clinical recovery takes about three to four weeks. Now, concussion protocol in the NFL now, it's third party, right? Like the NFL doesn't actually have any, well, Okay, the NFL doesn't announce or or will say that they have no hand in the actual concussion protocols of of deciding or determining when the players can return to field of play. Um, obviously, money talks and like that. There's absolutely pressure, I'm sure, on whatever the agency is that's running these yeah. uh, testing protocols to try to get the players back as soon as possible. Yeah, and it's so tough because, you know, like you said, money talks. So, you know, when you're an active player in the NFL or active player in college D1, you don't care. Put me in. I need to make money. I don't make money if I don't play. But then what, what really hurts to hear is then when we meet with the NFL Players Association or we meet with former players at conferences or, you know, reaching out events, charity events, and you get the 30-year-old or the 40-year-old or their spouse, and they're like, I'm really concerned about them, or like, I really wish I didn't do that. And they kind of have this regret of like, I wish this was managed better, or I wish we knew now what, um, I wish we knew back then what we knew now. And so it's really hard to hear that. Um, but it's tough, because you can't make that decision for them. You know, if they're cleared to go, and they feel okay, and the team doctor clears them, they're going to go in. And so... It's really tough, and they're trying to mitigate those measures. You know, you've got those guardian helmets. Now. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> like, so, so the players, they hate there was them. a few players that came out, and they not only said that they hated them, but they said that it literally doesn't help it, an ounce with the impact. Now, yeah. it's obviously hard for the player who, it, you know, is making a thousand points of contact a day to really determine how much that's helping or hurting if they're not getting concussed. Um, how much do you think those are helping? I don't think they're prime time ready. <laughs> I say that much. You know, I wish I wish I had data on it. Obviously, that's you know under wraps. But um, you know, in talking with the NFL Players Association, like they they hate them, like you said. You know, people have publicly said they hated them as well, and so um, it's really tough to get buy in to use something if they don't want to use it. And unfortunately, the NFL kind of becomes the uh, 
test dummy for a lot of gimmicks. You know, uh, Luke Keekley was the linebacker on Carolina Panthers. He had some issues. I think with he concussions. played under Philly for a few minutes. Yeah, I think he did as well. Um, I obviously watched him when he was with Carolina because that's when I was living there. So, you know, that's what game was on. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the Bears were blacked out in that area. And so, uh, you know, he w- had some partnership with like cute collar and it was just like the most gimmicky gimmick out there. But, you know, the NFL is going to try anything. So if it doesn't hurt them, they're going to try it. And the whole logic behind this collar was that it um, puts pressure on uh, the artery and it's going to pseudo inflate or deflate these um, intracranial pressure. <laughs> I might be wrong, but wasn't this based on the anatomy of a ram? Of a woodpecker. Of a, wo- a woodpecker. Yes. I could have sworn that it was it was a, an animal that butts their head regularly. Yeah. A woodpecker. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. touche. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's so much research out there as to why woodpeckers don't get concussions. And so there's all these theories that they artificially They're stupid affect. to begin with. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe they're just perpetually concussed and we don't know it. I, right. I keep asking if he has a headache and he doesn't tell me. Yeah. You know, and there's all these weird theories about it. You know, it's the bone structure in their beak or it's their, you know, they're, they're altering their intracranial blood pressure or their tongue wraps around their skull providing a cushion and oh, so wow. all these things and so like the cue collar was kind of based off of that and obviously we're not woodpeckers and it didn't work <laughs> uh, but yeah you know they'll try anything and I don't blame them you know so they're they're trying and, and you got to give them credit because everyone's watching you but it is really tough as a concussion researcher when you see concussive insult on Sunday and then they're back within one to two weeks because we know that even though they may be symptom free they're still having some executive dysfunction so the the ability to do two things at once which football is probably seven things at once um, they're probably having that deficit unfortunately beyond a month sometimes we see those deficits up to six months out and I'm sure to some degree there is this ethical dilemma too where let's say it is a playoff game or you know god forbid the Super Bowl that player is going to want to go in even if they understand that there are certain trade-offs I mean we see this even outside of concussion protocol so for instance you'll have players have almost like a complete bicep tear yeah and they'll wear the bionic arm completely and and go and play so how much of that do you think you know we should allow for with brain injuries. Yeah. I mean, in theory, none, (laughs) you know, just because we don't know what we don't know. And and the reality is, is, you know, you can have some really worse dysfunction by playing through when your first concussion hasn't healed and you're playing through it, uh, you're going to make it worse. And, you know, there are the rare instances of second impact syndrome. Um, you know, and so we're just thinking it's really, that's why it's so hard with concussion because, you know, bicep tear, like you just said, Um, it's easy to play through that. We can always reattach it. It's fine. It's probably going to have sufficient function for the rest of your life, but you have one brain and we can't give you a bionic brain. And so it's really hard, um, to try to sell that to people because a lot of the dysfunction that happens associated with repetitive neurotrauma doesn't tend to appear until mid adulthood. So So, it's it's delayed. mm -hmm. So it's like 50, 60, 70 years old. Um, and so it's really hard to sell someone and be like, hey, I know you're 20 and you're making millions of dollars, but don't you care about when you're 70? Because first of all, they don't even picture themselves living that long. You know, they're like, I'm just living in the now, you know? And so yeah. it's really hard to kind of have that sell um, because, you know, they're just going to play through it. They're, they, you know, if they feel fine, they're going to go through it and they're just going to 
go as far as anyone will let them know. And so that's kind of where that team doc has to come in and say, hey, yes or no. And it's really hard because, you know, everyone's going to have a bias. You don't know if someone's pushing them and twisting their arm and say, put them in, you know, it's, it is really tough, but yeah, we, you're really not seeing that dysfunction till later. Like there is the random odd person that has dysfunction at 40 and, and, you know, that's why it's so interesting with concussion research is you have somebody who's had 20 lifetime concussions and they have no issues in later life. And then you have somebody with no history of neurotrauma and they have CTE. And you're like, what? <laughs> so I'm going to ask you an impossible question just because I was thinking about it as you were talking about that point, which is how many people do you feel like are walking around with mild to moderate symptoms as a byproduct of head injuries that are unknowing? You know, we actually published this. Oh, really? <laughs> so we had a paper, Jacqueline Cassis is the head author um, at Ohio State Medical School, where we looked at the clinical definition for persistent concussion symptoms, which is the presence of three or more symptoms, and um, just baseline amongst college athletes, clinically, it was like 15% would be diagnosed with persistent concussion symptoms, just wow. at baseline, which makes complete sense though, right? I mean, you know, we coach CrossFit, get the 6 a.m. class. <laughs> Let's administer a survey. Do you have any sensitivity to light, excessive fatigue, headache? You know, people have symptoms all the time. Like the theory of being asymptomatic or symptom-free is just so hard. That's why it's really helpful to have somebody's baseline, right? Some people are just symptomatic, you know, and, right. and you know, they have headaches. They're chronically dehydrated, you know. They're hungover. They didn't sleep well. Their girlfriend broke up with them. So they have all these somatic symptoms or these anxiety and mood symptoms. And so, you know, is this related to the head trauma? Is this related to personal life? And so just kind of pulling that away. Um, but aside from that, there's probably plenty of people that have, you know, car accidents that don't get things sussed out or, or they don't seek treatment. Cause like I said, it takes 24 hours potentially sometimes. And so there's definitely times where people have come in. I mean, we had a case at Delaware actually when I was doing my PhD where, um, individual was on a roller coaster and passed out on the roller coaster, like just completely blacked out, lost consciousness. And then it turned out he had, um, lingering concussion symptoms from a previous injury and he just had this vestibular um dysfunction and so with paired with the you know roller coaster and dehydration and florida just this vasovagal dysfunction and that kind of triggered it and what's the typical um track look like for somebody that is experiencing those symptoms they go to their physician and they get sent to a neurologist yeah they'll probably get sent to neurology first and foremost um and then within neurology we have multiple strands that we'll go to so um you know obviously i work in a neurology department and within our neurology group for the traumatic brain injury group we have um advanced practitioners so we've got you know your nurse practitioners and then we also work with speech pathology because some people may have some speech dysfunction depending on the level of their traumatic brain injury. Um, neuropsychologists, which are really, really helpful. So they're working with things like all those somatic symptoms, some mental health dysfunction, um, you know, headaches. And then physical and occupational therapy or PM&R physicians as well just for all those random things, right? So vestibular stuff, you know, if we need to do vestibular rehab, Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver, um, maybe you're having like cervical issues because you had a whiplash concussion. So a lot of people, 
uh, don't address that tightness in the cervical muscles and then they're pulling and then they're having headaches. You know, it's kind of like when you're slumped at your desk all day and you're like, gosh, my head hurts. And you're like, well, yeah, you've been looking down all day. And um, so there's a whole slew of people that we can refer out to. And in a perfect world, you have all of them working for you. And, you know, the NFL players have that. The college athletes have that. But the unfortunate reality is not everyone does, you know. And so it's going to be go see your primary care physician and they're going to say, call me if you get worse. Hopefully not not turn the lights off. Yeah, you know, because they're overburdened, you know. Like most of our people, majority of the population that has a traumatic brain injury is older adults, you know, because things like falls or car accidents. And unfortunately, that's probably the care that they're going to get is primary care physician. And if it gets worse, call me. And, you know, when... Like I said, in a perfect world, everybody gets neuropsych, a, a neuropsychologist working with them. Everybody sees a neurologist. Everybody sees, you know, a physical or occupational therapist. Yeah. So to, to wrap this up, I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question, um, which will determine your predictability. What is the dark matter of concussion research? Where are we headed? And what spaces do you think we're going to kind of enter into that are going to illuminate um, some sides of research that we haven't thought of before or some protocols that will be new and transformative? Yeah. uh, Blood biomarkers. Absolutely blood biomarkers. In a perfect world, NFL quarterback takes a hit, has symptoms, we draw blood right then and there, and we have a sideline available ability to just look at things like PTAU, um, GFAB, NFL. Yeah, it's ironically called NFL. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek named, I think, to be named after the NFL. It's called neurofilament light, but it's they're just biomarkers of like axonal and neuronal um, damage. So, yeah, like GFAB, um, PTAU, neurofilament light, uh, and just looking at those acutely post-concussion because if if we can get that and, and perfect it, you know, kind of like a blood glucose test, right? You know, I prick your finger. Within two minutes, I get a reading and it says, great, your blood glucose is, you know, 86. Perfect. If we could have something like that on the sideline, awesome. Because the, if that right then and there and that's perfect and that's validated, we know right then and there it's a yes-no system. Like, yes, concussed see you later. No, not concussed. We can put them back in. And that mitigates all of the, you know, middleman and all the waiting or gosh, we pulled him or her when we shouldn't have, or we kept him in when we shouldn't have. It sounds like the bridge from self-reporting. Exactly. We want it to be objective. Exactly. Because right now we're so limited to self-report. The fact that we have all these amazing tests, you know, um, neuropsychiatric tests on the computer, neuropsychological assessments, and we have physical tests with gait and dual task gait and cognitive assessments. And again, symptoms and self-reported symptoms end up being the number one predictor of concussion. Yeah. And so until we can get that objective assessment, and that's why we're trying to get that, that blood and saliva biomarkers, but it's just not, you know, we're not there side yet. ready. Yeah. Not there yet. Well, Katie, thank you so much for both for everything you do here at Hard Bad Athletics, but also um, everything you do as part of your concussion um, research. Um, I know that a lot of people are going to benefit from this conversation. Um, tell some people some basic resources that they can look for, whether it be through you or for some of the um, things that you work on and do. 
Yeah, uh, there's a lot of information out there for concussions, and there's some really cool ones. Um, yeah, the Concussion Corner podcast is one of a favorite one of mine. It's run by a physical therapist who had persistent concussion symptoms. So speaking of empathy, um, she interviews a lot of researchers to just talk about research and try to put it in lay terms. And there's just a lot of concussion researchers out there on Twitter and, and um you know, concussion clinics that try to put things out. The big one that comes to mind is the Michigan University Concussion Center. Uh, they try to put out quarterly information just for the lay person and for mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad, whomever, guardian, um, which is really, really helpful because that's one of the top research groups out there led by Steve Brolio. And, um, you know, when in doubt, just ask, you know, there's just random concussion clinics out there, Um and researchers are always happy to talk about their research. I, it's it's so foreign to me, it, or it was so foreign to me as, as like an undergrad, but really like all of our research is for the most part publicly available. All of our emails are publicly available. And I will get the random email or the random direct message on t- Twitter and says, hey, I have this issue, or hey, I read your research. Like we're always happy to talk about our research within the scope of our legal practices, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can always just reach out to somebody too and say, hey, I saw this research, you know, what's this mean? And people nine times out of 10 will respond, which is really nice. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, thank you again so much for hopping on. I know that we'll do this again and we'll probably go down a million other <laughs> roads. So there's always so much that we can talk about. So thank you again and- Yeah, thank you.